Hi everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Low Season Traveller Insider Guides. I'm your host, Jed Brown, founder of Low Season Traveller, and this week we're starting our podcast series on low season travel in the African continent. Most of us are not as well travelled in Africa as we are in other regions of the world, and that includes me. Yet, Africa offers some of the most incredible, awe-inspiring and breathtaking travel experiences available in our world. As a continent, Africa experiences the tiniest fraction of incoming tourists that are seen in Europe, the Americas, Asia and Australasia. And yet, it is Africa which has some of the richest cultural heritage, wildlife, flora and fauna found anywhere on Earth. As our guest will mention, it's only when you visit these incredible destinations for yourself that you truly begin to understand. Once you go, you know. And so, as we seek experiences away from the crowds, join us as we embark on a journey to some of the least visited destinations in the world and learn just why on earth Africa is so often overlooked when we consider our travel plans. In this first episode, we're joined by Warren Pearson, who's a specialist naturalist guide, an explorer, a photographer, a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society, and he's completed projects with Animal Planet and National Geographic, among many others. Warren has traveled extensively throughout the African continent and appeared courtesy of Africa Rome as part of the Low Season Africa mini-series on Facebook and YouTube live events, which are held every Monday at 1400 UK time. In this episode, we spoke to Warren about the low season experiences to be enjoyed in his homeland of South Africa. Enjoy. Good afternoon, Jed. Can you hear me? We can, and we can now see you as well. Uh, how are you? Hey, good to see you, Jed. I'm very well, yeah. thank you, and you. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm very good indeed. Thank you very much. Um, so is that is that where you're based? Are you based out on the on the coast there? Where, whereabouts are you now? Just so we can build a picture for everybody at home. I'm very close to, to where you are watching now. Um, I'm probably about 20 minutes away from Hermanas, which is known as probably one of the best whale watching places in the world. So um, yeah, the coastline is, is very close to me and uh, a place that I love to explore. Very good, very good. Um, so did we did we did we do you justice in our intro there? Um, tell us a little <laughs> bit more. Tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you came to how you came to uh, to be the expert in in wildlife that you are. Give us a little bit of an overview. Yeah, thank you for your amazing intro. You got me blushing a bit there. Um, <laughs> I've been I've been in the industry over about twenty years now. I started in in late nineteen ninety nine, and um, I started off guiding at a safari lodge in the Greater Kruger National Park. Um, and the company that I was with actually managed lodges all over Africa. So I very quickly got my sort of foot in the door and asked them, you know, I want to go and manage there. I want to go and work there. I want to go and see this place, go see that place. And, and I was very fortunate to be able to do that. So um, yeah, did did that for close on probably eight, nine years. Um, and then went on my own and started private guiding. So I had a lot of clients that came back to me and said, listen, we want you to guide us. Where would you recommend we go? What do you want to do? You know, so um, yeah, for the last well, probably I'd say now close on twelve years, eight years, maybe I'm sorry, twelve, eleven years. I've been doing it on my own, um, working with amazing companies like Africa Rome and um, putting trips together and, and leading them. Very good. And was this? I mean, is this something? Was this something that you wanted to get into as a kid? You know, were you, you know, were you like a lot of little boys are, you know, going outside in the in the garden and, you know, pretending that you're out in the wilds? 
Yeah, it's as long as I can remember, I've always wanted to be out in nature. And I'd also, I mean, we, we often had a family little dispute every time we went on holiday because my sister always wanted to go to the coast. I always wanted to go to the bush. Um, so my parents are sort of pulled both sides saying, well, where do we go? So I was happiest in the bush. Um, and my grandfather spent probably five, six uh, times a year, he would be traveling to the Greater Kruger National Park, and I always wanted to go with him. Um, he was a big birder, he was a big photographer. So I think that's where I sort of got my major, if I can say, crush and love for the bush. Yeah. Very good. Very good. So um, I suppose let's let's start off. Uh, you know, we're talking about low season in South Africa. I suppose this, the starting point very naturally has to be, you know, when is the low season in South Africa? I, am I right in saying it's 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 <laughs> our, our summer time, your winter time? Yeah, well, I, I think you you got to split the country up in, in two sections. I think that's probably the most important part of it. And uh, um, I don't know if, if you can, one of those pictures maybe I sent you, um, the rainfall zones, do you have it there? I can just quickly show I you. Do. It just yeah. gives you an idea of, of those that are watching and even hearing um, exactly. So if you look at the sort of the, the southwestern up there where Cape Town is, it's, it's got a Mediterranean climate. So yeah. the rains come during the winter time, our winter time, so in the southern hemisphere. So that would be anywhere from sort of end of March to September, um, where the rest of the country, um, that sort of darker red period, because that's where all of the majority of the, the safari lodges are um, and national mm -hmm. parks, um, their low season would be obviously opposite that to, to what's in Cape Town. Um, so their, their sort of low season months would be November to May. Um, they do have periodic thunder showers and thunderstorms. And, and so you've got to try and work your way around that and, and understand how, how the climatology works, I think, on the country, because it is quite a large country. Um, so, mm -hmm. yeah, so if you're talking about Cape Town specifically, then, yeah, we're looking end of March to September when the rains come. And I always laugh because you get a lot of South Africans that will say, you know, don't go to Cape Town in winter because it rains all the time. I'm like, I'm looking outside now, it's 25 degrees centigrade, middle of our winter, and it's a beautiful blue sky. So, yeah, um, 20, yeah 25 degrees is as good as we get here, Warren, just so you know that. <laughs> I'm only wearing a jumper because I'm inside my office at the moment. But yeah, it's it's you know it's stunning. We do have periods where it will rain and it will be wet for a couple of days maybe, and then it clears up to the most spectacular of of sunshine and days. And you know, if you've had a big cold front, there's snow on the mountains, and it's it's beautiful. Yeah. You know, it's absolutely spectacular to see, and so many people miss that um, yeah. because they don't come down to Cape Town in this so-called low season. Um, and the opposite for you know, for the bush and the, and the safari lodges and the, the, that side of the, the, the country, because the low season is typically summer for them, um, for us, I should say, and uh, November to May. And it is hot. You will get the odd rain shower. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's, 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 it's a spectacular time to be. Um, you know, there's, there's not a lot of people there. You get all the sightings and more that you could sometimes wish for uh, when you're here in peak season. So um, to me, you're actually missing out a lot when you when you miss low season in, in, in South Africa. It's it's interesting. I mean, obviously, we, we you know we wanted to to focus having a you know an expert like you on the on the show, and we, we're grateful to um, to Africa Rome for for having you. Um, but we obviously we wanted to focus on the wildlife side of things and the, the safari side of things. Um, and I suppose I just wanted to sort of you know lay one of the fears. I feel like one of the fears 
for people who are considering a safari is if you go in the low seasons, the reason it's the low season is, you know, you're not going to see anything for whatever reason. Um, and that's why you have to kind of stick to the high seasons. And that's why the high seasons are the high seasons, because you see yeah. the most wildlife. Is that is that true? Is that a fallacy? What's the what's the story with that? It's 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 partly true, if I can sit on the fence a bit yeah. here. Um, if you're going into a national park, and it's a national park that, let's take, for example, the Kruger National Park. Now, Kruger National Park has, has private lands sort of surrounding its sort of western borders. Um, it also has certain private concessions within the Kruger National Park. But if you're going along as a an individual and you're driving yourself through Kruger National Park, yeah, in summertime uh, and low season, it can be a little bit more difficult to find the animals because the bush is thicker. You know, it's the rainy season. It's, it's stunningly green, leaves on all the trees and the bushes. Um, there's water scattered all over the place. So it does make it a little bit more difficult. Um, but... Don't get me wrong. You, you're going to see a lot of animals still. You know, you, there, there will still be stuff out there. It's not like they hide away in the bush and you don't see them. I think why people sell our winter time as the highest sort of point for safari would be there's no leaves on the trees, or most of the trees have lost their leaves. The bush is a lot thick, uh, thinner, so it's easier um, to just spot an animal. <clears throat> so when you're driving around, just to look through the bush and see it. But if you're going to a safari lodge that has expert guides that have expert trackers um, that can track an animal, get on foot, track these animals down, drive off road, you're going to see as much in our low season as you will in the high season. Um, you know, a lot of people say it's exceptionally hot and humid, but it's, it's, it doesn't change the experience at all. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's sad that people only sell, typically, or not say only sell, most of the time will only sell the low season uh sorry the high season so our, our winter period yeah. um i love our, our our rainy our rainy season and you know the, the migratory birds are back the bush is an emerald green i actually call it the emerald season because it is so beautiful and a lot of people come here when they do come in our summer and they say to us it's, it's so green i didn't expect it to be so green um i think these these natural pictures of africa and the savannas and it's being this cocky brown and you know those kind of <laughs> colors is what people perceive it to be, but um, yeah. no, it's it's. I don't think you're going to see any less animals. You know, if you go to the right place and you choose the right place to do it and how to do it, you got the right yeah. people on the ground. It helps. Certainly, um, you know. I suppose for you know, we we spoke before um, off air. We were sort of talking, and I was telling you how the the first time I did a safari, um, and in fact, it's. it's really it's the only sort of safari that I did uh, it was a number of years ago and I, I wasn't um, you know I've always been interested in wildlife but I was never particularly you know it was never a big bucket list item for me was to was to go on safari and um, you know maybe there's going to be a lot of people watching and listening um, to this program who've never even considered um, a safari and you know for me it was only when I went and I went through it was work bizarrely <laughs> it sounds like a great work doesn't it um, I was bringing a group of travel agents to experience a safari but it's only because I went with work that once I was there you know I just got it and you know like you were saying there you, you know during the low seasons you will you know you're going to see wildlife it's not like you're not going to see anything um and do you sort of do you find that that you know that people it's only when they actually go on safari for the first time that they actually 
they get it and it just starts to ring true. Is that is that your experience from the people that you meet? Absolutely. I mean, I call it the aha moment. Um, yeah. You know, people literally go, "Whoa!" It's like aha, and they, they, they. I think if it's if a trip is, you know, if a trip is sold correctly, I think, and and, and the expectations are met from the very beginning, um, that to me is probably the most important part of 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 any travel anywhere in the world, actually. Um, you know, and, and if you're speaking to someone that's an expert of Africa who lives in Africa or travels Africa. Um, you know, those expectations are met in the beginning. People are going to go, hang on, you know, why haven't I been coming sooner? Why haven't I, why have I only coming now? I've, I've had so many clients of mine that, yeah, sadly in their 70s and 80s, and they, you, you see them at the end of the trip and like looking quite down. And I'm like, well, are you okay? They said, it's just our time's running out and we want to come back and we want to see more and we want to see more. And it's, it's, they just said, we just wish we could have known about this 20 years ago you know to, to yeah. come and to me it's people come for the wildlife and it, it, it's a huge part of it and something that i try and push a lot is it's more than just the wildlife and when you get to africa you're going to really understand that the, the wildlife is that nice little sort of section that yeah you got to come and see an experience but when you come and see the scenery when you come and see and meet the people and the local people on the ground um the tribes it's 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 it's, it's it's a bigger picture it's it's huge and then people just they do they just get it they're just like okay I've, I've got to come back and i'd probably say the majority of all the trips that i lead and guide um probably close on maybe 70 80 probably even 90 percent do come back because it's like first of all it was my one and only trip at the end of the safari we're coming back and where are we going to book it again so um yeah absolutely they do get that get it moment I suppose as well, you know, potentially the, um, you know, for a first timer on safari, you know, again, if you're, if you're not sure what to expect, um, you know, given that during the low seasons, it tends to be a little bit less expensive as well. Um, it could be a good introduction for people, you know, for the first time, you know, come during the low season, because, you know, once you, you know, you, you're going to see wonderful wildlife, you're going to experience the culture, you're going to learn a lot about South Africa. Um, but also, you, you know, you're going to want to come back anyway, no matter yeah. what. So why not just as a sort of relatively low risk, so to speak, um, you know, come during come during the low season and uh, and get a and get a taste for it, right? No, absolutely. You know, and the, the sad thing that I often see is that you know people when they sort of do a bit of research about safaris, and you find a lot of people do a little bit of their own research. Um, they'll get on online and get onto Google or wherever it might be and, and have a look at, you know, when the first thing they type in probably most of the time is when is the best time to go. And yeah. the majority of the websites will all give you well high season and it's, it's okay, well, let's book and it's maybe four or five months out. And, you know, if you want to go on a safari anywhere in Africa, you have to book at least a year to two years out if you want to go in the high season, um, yeah. you know, and in the low season, it's space is available. The, the rates are cheaper. Um, you will see as much and experience as much in that period of time. Um, and I think the most important thing when you're coming in the low season is just to have a very flexible um, attitude and, and sort of, uh, if I can say itinerary, but just a way of moving around and saying, hey, listen, if it's raining today, well, we're going to do that, but we're going to try something different and we're going to do that. 
So um, yeah, being flexible and, and understanding that um, is, is a huge part of traveling. And uh, I think those adventurous kind of travelers that like to, you know, stay away from the crowds. And I'm one of those, you know, if, if there's a whole bunch of vehicles going left, I'm going to be that one and only car that's going to go to the right hand side. Um, yeah. You know, and, and that's the kind of people that if, if you want to experience no crowds in some places and some parts, you know, you'll have a national park all to yourself. Um, and I'm not kidding when I say that. I mean, I was in a part of Africa last year in the low season. I was literally the only person, only guide in that area. Um, wow. So, yeah, people miss out sadly a lot. And, and I'm so glad that we were able to chat about this because it's, it's, it's something that's very close to my heart is getting people to travel you know, all around the year, actually. It's, it's, you just got to be able to come and do it. <laughs> I must admit, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, with a company like Low Season Traveler, I'm the same. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm exactly that way. You know, if all of the crowd are going one way, I'll literally go the opposite direction. And if, you know, if everybody, if, if they tell me, you know, you've got to go to this place and everybody's going, um, I'm, I'm going the other direction with a sense of adventure thinking, great. And if they tell me, you know, you'd be crazy to go at that time of the year, that's like a red rag to a bull, frankly, <laughs> you know. If they tell me you'd be crazy yeah. to go at that time yeah. of the year, I'm thinking, okay, but I, I need to look into this now, you know. Um, and I think that's the way in exactly. which you know that's the way low season travelers that that's you know that's the that's the mindset. It's that um, you know we always say that the days of Marco Polo and you know discovering new countries and new destinations have gone, but you can still get that sense of adventure. Uh, and the adrenaline and that that bit of excitement when you're traveling somewhere at a time when most people don't travel, you can still have that kind of excitement. I think that's that's what that's what you know what appeals to me certainly, and I know it appeals to a lot of our audience as well. Absolutely. Um, so let, let's talk a little bit more about the about the sort of the, the safari experience. And again, you know, just for, again for all of our listeners out there and our and our viewers out there. Um, when we, you know, when we when we talk about a safari, but break us down. What what is the tip? What's a what's a typical experience? What's a typical day like uh, when you're with your client? Is is there a typical day, um, broadly speaking? But what, what's it no. like when you're there with your clients? <laughs> every every day, I mean, everyone says like comes to me and says, "Do you have a plan for the day?" And I'm like, eh, I sort of have a plan, but typically when you head out and within the last sort of first five minutes that plan cha plan changes completely so every day is different and that's that's the excitement of a safari is that you just it's it's an open book you never know what you're going to find and, and and explore and see um but typically it's it's a very early start <laughs> that's so if, if you're a morning person fantastic if you're not a morning person it's fine i've learned to understand not to talk to people before sort of 10 o'clock in the morning oh really but it's <laughs> You, you you need you need to be an early uh, early riser. Sunrise is even better because if you're out there and you're watching that sunrise in the morning and you get out to a specific spot wherever it might be, um, and you will just take take the time to watch a sunrise and. You know, people don't do that. I feel often enough. They don't sit and watch the sunrise, or they watch. They don't watch the sunset. Um, people are often rushing at that time of the morning or the evening to to do other things. So just you know, get out and just listening to the uh, the sounds of, of of what's out there. Maybe there was lions calling in the night before, or you know, a leopard calling close to the camp, um, or not. It's just it's just 
to head out and, and go and experience nature and, and the bush. And it's, as I said, it's one thing I love about it is, is that you just don't know what you're going to find. Um, you know, I have had clients in the past that have said to me, so what are we going to see today? I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, that's part of the fun is, is yep. heading out there and, and let's see what tracks we find on the ground. Um, let's see what, what other animals are doing. You know, there's, there's, if you know how to read the bush and listen to the sounds and the tracks, it will lead you places and it leads you into the most amazing sightings that you could possibly have if you have the patience and the understanding of, of wanting to do that. Um, so to me, it's, it's getting out and taking it slow and, and not racing from one big sighting to another big animal over here to there or to wherever, because you end up racing around and, and as we call in the safari industry, having a bit of a Ferrari safari, which wow. is um, not, not fun for most people. Um, so yeah, it's it's you know early start, head out normally warm up a bit. Um, when it warms up a bit, but you sort of stop for a cup of coffee or hot chocolate. Um, sometimes you don't even have to stop, you know, if things are really happening. Um, and that's the other side of it yeah. is we're out there to look for wildlife and and enjoy nature. We don't always have to stop for the the typical uh, sundowner or, or um, coffee stop in the morning. But it is nice to actually just stretch the legs every now and again. And then uh, typically head back to the camp for a late lunch, um, early lunch, uh, late breakfast. Um, and for me specifically, I mean, if people are traveling with me, it's, it's, we don't want to be confined to what the camp or the lodge does. So you've got to be back for breakfast at 8 o'clock. It's no rubbish. It's we come back when we want to come back. Um, because this is why we're here. This is we're here to find the animals. So that time could be if it's nine o'clock in the morning, it could be twelve o'clock midday. Who knows? Sometimes we're actually out all day, um, and if that happens, you know, we make sure that we arrange a picnic or something like that will come out with us. Um, and then typically, if you do head back to the camp, it's the we, we follow the the Spanish system of of having a good afternoon siesta. Um, Love that. Most of the the animals typically during the heat of the day, and I, I mean even in our winter the heat of the day, it does get quite warm in places. So typically around 12 to three o'clock in the afternoon is you have a bit of downtime at the camp. Um, and then we will head out again anytime from three, four o'clock onwards. And depending on where we are, um, you know, and depending on where you are in Africa is, is you, you, you can sometimes spend out later at night and do a, the night safari, um, or depending on the camps, you have to be back in camps. So as I said, depending on a national park or a private concession. So um, yeah, to me, spending out at night, it's it's exciting, it's fun, um, it's a completely different experience when you got this blackness that surrounds you, the stars open up above your head, um, and you got a vehicle, open vehicle, and there's a spotlight being shone around, and you're looking for for nocturnal animals, um, animals that are active at night. You know, that's another exciting part of it. Um, and I forgot actually the sunset. <laughs> so getting out there and actually watching the sunset is is, is spectacular. Um, and that's it. Then we head back to camp typically at around, it could be any time, you know, we don't really get back too late. But um, yeah, I would say probably around eight o'clock at night, seven, yeah, seven, eight o'clock at night. For me, I love being out at night. It, it's it's the Milky Way galaxy that just lights up the world and it's, it's spectacular, you know, and to, to learn about the constellations and the stars. Um, and one thing that I will never, ever forget 
is probably in my early days of guiding, I had a gentleman, I think, if I remember correctly, I'm talking a good probably 15, push, push, pushing maybe 18 years ago, this gentleman came out from New York and we went out and we were driving around and we ended up stopping quite late and we had a drink stop quite late. And we stayed there until it got pitch black. And next minute, I said, just look up at the stars. And I, everyone was quiet. And the next minute, I heard this gentleman crying. And I was like, what? Are you okay? And he just said to me, I've never, ever seen stars like this ever in my life. He says, I've, wow. I've grown up and lived my entire life in New York City. And this is the first time I've seen something like this. And it just that hit me. It hit me like, whoa, you know, this is this is something very special for me. And for people that come out here, you know, take the time to just, yeah, we're there to look for animals and stuff, but the stars and the sounds and just take it slow. And um, ever since then, I've always look up at the stars and I think of that gentleman every single time I look at, look up. It's true, isn't it? Though it's sometimes it's the it's the simple things that um, you know that that I guess you know we we all take for granted at different times. I can remember years ago living in Dublin myself, and I was living right in the city centre of Dublin, and I remember going weeks, months um, without seeing you know really any sort of green you know rolling hills, trees, all of that kind of stuff. Obviously, there's parks in Dublin, but you'd, it was only then when I went out to the countryside and you're like, yeah, I kind of missed. Looking, I know it sounds bizarre, but when you're in a city, you um, everything that you're looking at is in relatively close proximity. So you know you're surrounded by buildings and it's close proximity, and it's actually quite stressful on the eyes. And it's when you go out into the countryside or out into the bush, when you're you're looking vast distances. There's something uh, relaxing about that, but also you get to see more sky. Um, and just a simple thing like yeah. you know, like these you know these big African skies, which you which you get to see and experience, whether it be at nighttime or during the day, it's um, it's something pretty special actually, especially when you don't get it, um, as we, we tend not to here. No, absolutely. I think what a lot of people, um, you know, especially if I can say Northern Hemisphere and people that, that travel to Africa, they the majority of them are in big cities and and can't see that far and. You know, I go to some places, for example, in the Kalahari, where it's so open and almost so flat, you can see the curvature of the earth um, just from an elevated position that you're looking at. Um, it's, it's, you know, the other thing, one of the other things I love about the low season um, in, on safari in, in, in South Africa is why people stay away is the thunderstorms and the rain that we get. And to me, there's nothing more spectacular than sitting out in the open and watching this magnificent lightning storm and thunderstorm happening around you. And yeah, you might, it might come across and might hit you and we might get a little bit wet, but you know, that's the experience. And after a thunderstorm happens and the rain clears away, the light that comes out from a photographic perspective, and not even from a photographic perspective, you know, just from taking it in, is is just it, it's I get goosebumps just thinking about it because it is absolutely mind blowing for me. Yeah, I, I must admit I'm exactly the same when it comes. I mean, again, it's similar with the low seasons in parts of the Far East, you know, and the Caribbean, uh, where they have these tropical downpours. And for me, I just absolutely love that. And like you were saying, you know, if you're sitting on your on your porch or whatever else, and you're watching that storm roll in, and you're seeing fork lightning all around you, I mean. That's you know you are watching the beauty of nature at its most ferocious. I absolutely you know I, I could kind of be addicted to that to be honest. Um, I really I really quite enjoy it. No, absolutely. And I think a lot. Of, 
I agree. And I think a lot of people forget about, you know, nature and, and something that can part of nature. It's all, it all makes, for me, it makes us realize where we fit into this world and how small we actually are when you watch this massive thunderstorm come through. Um, you know, the power of that storm and just, you watch the animals take it all in, you see the bush come alive afterwards, you know, it's just, it's, it's absolutely spectacular. And it was at this point that we showed a short video on some of the highlights of a safari in Kruger. And then we proceeded to get Warren's take on that video. So that's, um, is, that a, is that a pretty good depiction as to the kind of experiences which you can have? Absolutely, absolutely. It, um, it gives a good sort of idea. Um, I think you know, people looking at that will probably have a lot of questions about a few things. Um, and this is where I think, you know, the, the pre-build up to a safari is, is very important in, in, in expectations and, and matching and meeting expectations for people. Um, so, no, absolutely. It's, it, uh, it gives you a pretty good, pretty good idea of what happens out there. We, um, we, we spoke about this briefly um, off air, um, but in one, of the, in one of the images there, you could see that there's a very small seat at the front of the, of the safari vehicles. Um, and you would say, now that's for spotters, is it? Trackers. Tra okay, <laughs> so, let's, let's, yeah, let's get the so lingo here now. What's the difference between a spotter and a tracker? All right, so typically a spotter um, is a gentleman that will sit at the back of a vehicle um and just spot animals so looking for animals he you know you'll find after a few days of being and even and i mean if you you know you come from your home and you come out for a few days your eyes won't get sort of used to what you're looking at and, and you won't necessarily see everything um whereas someone that's grown up in the bush has been there for a very long time they their eyes are more tuned to, to seeing certain things um now spotters can be fantastic um but to me what's even better is to have someone sitting on the front of the vehicle, that seat that you saw, um, and that's a tracker. Now, a tracker is someone that is, I have probably the most unbelievable respect for. Um, they have an art and it's a skill that they've grown up learning to how to track an animal by looking at signs around what the bush is giving you. And typically it's, it's footprints on the ground, um, but it could be a smell, it could be definitely your eyesight. Um, it could be the way that a tree has been eaten, for example. Um, and that person on the front of that vehicle, to me, brings a safari alive, um, if you let them. Now, yeah. when I say if you let them, there are unfortunately so many guides out there that, that, that don't, I feel, give the trackers enough credit for what they do, because they are, honestly, they are some phenomenal men and women um and it's it's if you give them the time and i've always said this to every single client of mine you know if you give them the time and if you have the patience if they find a fresh track if it's a leopard or if it's a lion could be a rhino it could be whatever animal and they're excited about it and they know that that track is going to lead them to find an animal let them go and we just sit back and we watch this unfold in front of us um, and that, to me, is probably one of the most exciting, exhilarating experiences anyone could have, is to see this man or woman finding this tiny little track, which you look at the ground, you're going to go, what are you looking at? Because I can't see anything. I just see a whole bunch of marks and mess. Um, and this person will literally find this animal and track it down. And to me, that is a skill that is yeah, not a, not a lot of people know about. 
sadly, you know, and, and it is sadly, a, it's a, it's a dying art. And um, there are a few organizations and companies around Africa that are trying to keep that art going. And for me, having guests sitting on a vehicle and being taught how to track an animal is, is then I'm happy. If, if people want to sit down with me and we go through that kind of stuff um, and they talk to the tracker and the tracker gets involved, it's, it, it opens up a new window into your world. It's almost like a, a different uh, like language that they understand. <laughs> They're able to interpret what they see around them. And I suppose you or I, maybe more me than you, would literally just, you know, like you say, see see Bush or whatever else. But you almost need a good tracker around to be able to, you know, to interpret that, uh, to help you to understand what you're looking at and what, and what you might be leading towards, I guess. No, absolutely. I 100% agree. And, you know, I've, I've often been out on, on, a, on a vehicle and you know, a comment will be thrown to me from people in the vehicle saying, there's no animals around. And the first thing I do is I stop the vehicle. I get everyone out and say, come, let's look at the road in front of us. And you look at the track and it's literally this animal walked here last night. There's that little animal. That one's walked there. That one's walked there. The next minute, you know, hang on, there's probably a good maybe 20 odd different species of animals that have walked this road, you know, in the previous evening, you know, going back. So it's it's just you need you need someone to interpret that bush experience and that wildlife experience and it does if you have someone and a tracker and a guide that work very well together to me is it, it's the best recipe that you could ever have and you'll never forget that trip because the tracker isn't is interpreting the bush and the guide is interpreting that to the clients and um you know and explaining it on a bigger scale so um, you need to me. You need a tracker in the bush, and unfortunately, you know, as I said, it's a dying art, and I just wish there were more of them out there, and uh, people would be amazed. And those those people that are, if they're listening to this um, or, or watching it, and have experienced something like that, they'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, and unfortunately, you have to experience it to know what I'm talking about. It's 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 something that just gets you. It gets to your core. It's something that is just so real. It was interesting, actually. Again, we you know we we spoke about this when we sort of caught up last week, um, and we we spoke about it briefly off air. But as well, I suppose it's similar with interpreting the sounds of the bush, right? I mean, that must be a similar skill, because um, I'd made the mistake when I was first talking about you know when I knew I was going on safari is imagining this you know it's like in the countryside in the uk when you know when you get out at night time it's you know it's deathly silent and oh it's the first time you can hear nothing um and there was people that were pulling me up left right and center saying you know it's really not necessarily very quiet here and um, we were going to have a clip to show uh, the viewers that are that are on with us today um just exactly how loud it can be at night time but unfortunately the video wouldn't work at the very last minute but describe to us some of those kind of sounds that you hear at night time as well um, and how you can kind of interpret those sounds i'm not, I'm not the best person to try and interpret animal sounds really? but I'll, I'll i'll give it i'll give it a go um but no but you're 100 correct there because i mean I, I i worked at a camp in the Serengeti, for example, and I'm just, I know we're talking about South Africa, but I just want to quickly mm -hmm. explain this. It was a tent at camp, and I often used to say to the guests that arrived, you know, don't be afraid if on the first night you don't sleep well, because you're going to hear so much noise. 
there are hippos that are going to be chewing grass right outside your tent. You're going to be hearing lions roaring. You're going to be hearing the wildebeest, the zebras. Um, you know, it's it's a constant cacophony of just sound. And I often wish I was sort of lying next to them, saying, you know, listen to that. That's that. That's this one. That's what animal that is. Um, because it will, it would, it would open up their world to knowing what is around them. And a lot of people do get freaked out, um, specific, specific, sorry, specifically on their first trip to Africa when they don't know what the sounds are. Um, but probably the most vocal of animals in, in Africa, I'd say, is the hippopotamus. Um, all day, all night, and if you are camping or sleeping anywhere close to a water source, um, you're going to hear them. <laughs> um, that's a given. Um, I don't know if I can give you a, 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 a <laughs> it's a very, it's a very loud, like an old man grunting there all day, all night. Um, but then, yeah, if, if you, you know, if you've got your ears attuned, lions roaring, um, they don't growl as in sort of all the time, but they give this very deafening kind of going out. Um, leopards, yeah. funny enough, give sounds off that you would not recognize at all. It sounds like a blunt saw cutting through wood. So it's a very much of a. <laughs> um, what else? Night jars. I mean, the, the nocturnal birds, for example. I mean, you know, that that to me is probably one of the most. Whenever I hear a night jar calling, I know I'm in the bush. It's just, I mean, I have them close to my home where I live here, but when I'm out there and I hear that, it's, it's special. Um, hyenas, another big one. Um, yeah. I'm sure those have seen Lion King and stuff sort of have this yeah. perception of a, of a hyena. And it's my number one goal is to get people to absolutely love and adore hyenas by the time that they leave Africa, because they are such amazing animals. Um, but they have this very whooping kind of whoo kind of call that goes through. And sometimes if they get excited, they get this little cat. It was shortly after this point that we lost contact with Warren as the internet gremlins caught up with us. But here we pick it up again as we start to talk about what the camping experience is like on safari in South Africa. I wanted to get onto a little bit more about when we're talking about camp um, and we're talking about tents. For anybody out there that's that's not familiar with what we're talking about, you know, for me as a kid, you know, and even a, a, a grown up going out and getting a tent is, you know, it's just a small triangular thing that three of us fit in and you're relatively open and exposed. Um, when we talk about camping in uh, in Kruger and places like that, what describe it for us, just for, for those that aren't aware of it. it it's glamping, not camping. So it's, it's glamorous camping. And um, you know, the tents are big, they're spacious. 99% of the tents have ensuite bathrooms, um, showers, hot water showers. Um, depending where you are, some of them will be a bucket shower. Um, but it's, it's, it's hot water. You know, you have, um, for example, uh, solar heating in, in a lot of the tents and lighting and that kind of stuff that will help out. So yeah, it's not a, it's not what uh, I even have friends that say, you know, I'm going, when I say I'm camping, they go, well, why are you camping in a small little, like three by two bow tent? Um, it's not that at all. I mean, you, you can go and do that. If you want to go do that on your own in, in some of the national parks, they have campsites. Mm -hmm. But for most part, the camping and the tents that we talk about are big, massive. Um, I mean, it's uh, look at some people's apartments that are, for, really? for example, in New, in New York, it's bigger than their apartment. Um, 
so yeah it's it's you have a canvas wall and a lot of people get very nervous for the canvas wall um the animals don't see it as canvas they see it as a solid object um and you know inside that tent you are 100 percent safe um the only sort of advice i always give to people is don't leave the tent open so don't leave it unzipped um and that's you know if you're gonna leave it un open or unlocked or anything like that um then you got a chance of something maybe coming in but um when you're there keep it closed when you leave keep it closed and it's it's probably one of the best experiences out there because once again you call you'll hear you'll hear so much more than being in a solid structure um and to me that's that's the best part about being out there is listening to what is what's around you yeah absolutely um what about uh, this? Sounds like a daft one, but this was um, my wife was saying. You know, ask do you have to check your shoes really carefully in the mornings. Um, you know, what kind of small, what kind of small creatures <laughs> do, you know, do, do we have? You know, we always talk about nature, and you know, when we're talking about you know Kruger and safaris, um, there's all this focus. It's always about you know it's the big five, and it's about seeing elephants, and about seeing lions, and all this kind of stuff. Um, talk to us a little bit about some of the smaller creatures. That uh, that we should that we should also watch out for. No, it's a good point. I mean, for me, the smaller the better. Um, you know, I, it's not that I don't love the big animals, but when you start understanding the smaller insect life, if I can put it like that, and um, you know, in the smaller brackets, I'm going to put insects, amphibians, reptiles, um, birds. Um, it just it does. It opens up another page, and you know, you you look at this and you go, hang on, this. You know, if we're not seeing a herd of elephants or we're not looking at a crowd of lions there's still so much more to look at and to experience and to learn about um you know people come and they say oh but we don't like the creepy crawlies we don't like the bugs and i don't want to be sort of say this incorrectly but you know that is africa and it's it's not just africa but it's any wilderness area that you're going to get around the world um you're going to get insects and you know scorpions and spiders and yeah i mean it's it's to me, maybe for me, it's different to, to other people around the world, but to me, it's common sense. If you, you know, put your shoes down and you wake up in the morning, I still, to this day, when I'm at home here, I tap my shoes and I check if there's anything inside of it. It's just a habit to get into. Um, you know, I have had, once I've had a scary experience where I've had a frog inside my shoe. I didn't know it was a frog at the time, but um, I didn't check my shoe. I put my foot into the boots and there was a frog inside my boots. And, I don't want to say I squealed, but I probably did a bit of a squeal. <laughs> it's, it's probably one of those things you're only going to do once. You know, mm. if you're out in the bush, you're only going to not check your shoes once. And, and once that doesn't work out for you, you'll never do it again. You'll check your shoes every time, I reckon. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, you know, the um, it, when you start getting someone that really understands insect life and it just as i said it just it makes it opens up a whole new world for you and you i don't know i walk around sometimes going i don't want to step on this you know this grass or this ground because there could be animals under here that i'm going to be hurting or crushing their homes with um so yeah absolutely you know there's there's um a lot more out there than the big animals and uh, you know if i can get people to understand the smaller stuff as well um you know, I mean, one of my favorite animals, probably most people have never heard of, or maybe they have after this pandemic that's that's been around, is and that's a pangolin. You know, that to me is my most ultimate favorite animal. Um, very hard to find, but it's small, it's tiny, and um, you know, most people have never heard of a pangolin, um, let alone seen one. I know guides in Africa that have been guiding for years, and they've never seen a pangolin. Um, 
but you know, for me, that's the small things. It's it's the small stuff that sort of brings it to the fore. The, the, those um, those pangolins. Funnily enough, I was looking at my my channel of choice these days is YouTube rather than TV, and I look at um, a lot of nature programs. Um, but one of the programs I was looking at last night um, actually had the the pangolin. I mean, they're strange looking creatures, aren't they? Really, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, incredibly well armored, and yeah, I I, hadn't, I had no idea on the size of them or really anything hugely about them. Um, but they're, they're yeah, they're fascinating creatures. I would love to see a pangolin. Um, but again, it's not it's not on the big five, but yeah. but you can see them you can see them in in Kruger. You can see them in Kruger if you if you're exceptionally lucky. Um, you can you know they they do occur all around the subcontinent, and um, it's a, it's an animal. I mean, literally, it's I can't really give you but probably about I'd say let's say about fifty centimeters long, um, and it weighs only about twelve kilograms really small um i won't say strictly nocturnal because sometimes they do come out during the daytime particularly in the colder months um but no it's an animal that's you know it's the most trafficked animal in the world and um they say like when my kids become adults that they probably will be extinct if, if nothing gets done to protect them um it's, it's an animal that i just really wish people could see um but once again you know if you're not <clears throat> if you don't have a good tracker Go back to the tracking. Um, who knows how to track them and wants to find them? Most most people won't won't even know what it is. Yeah, we're. Um, I'm conscious of time. We're running down to the last sort of uh, five, five or ten minutes. Um, just to, sort of before we finish for today, um, maybe you could give us an outline as to one of the. Um, and I should have really prepped you for this, of course. <laughs> Um, but one of the one of the best experiences that you've had, you, one of the best experiences that you've had in Kruger, um, that would come to mind. And at least at least we know you haven't prepared this, as in it is going to be off the top of your head. But if I was to say to you to t tell talk us through the best experience you can think of that you've had in Kruger, talk us through it. You have put me on the spot, yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> there, you know, there, there's so many. There's so many. I mean. I, I, I hate to say there's just one. Um, yeah. You know, I've I've had so many amazing experiences. I've been very privileged and fortunate to have worked in the areas that I've worked and 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 continue to work in. I, I I've had amazing experiences from finding, you know, one week old leopard cubs. Oh wow. To watching an to watching an elephant give birth to, um, it's just you know watching a mother and daughter um, that. First time on safari, we watched a herd of impala, which, you know, most people coming out on safari will go, oh, it's another impala, it's another impala. There's just so many of them. But we spent yeah. literally four hours with them, and they cried the entire time watching just a ah. herd of impala. You know, for me, that was so special. Um, yeah. To the gentleman I mentioned earlier who was crying looking at the stars. That's, so there's there's so many experiences. Uh, um, it's, it really is difficult just to yeah. put it no, on paper I, and say that was the I get that. I think I think as well. You know, it's true. You're you know you're in a, especially in a in a quite a uniquely privileged position to, um, yeah, to be able to experience the human emotions for people when they are experiencing you know this kind of nature um, at first hand, sometimes for the first time. Um, that must be you know incredibly rewarding actually for you. I would have thought as well. Absolutely, it's it's very rewarding. It's very humbling as well. It's it's sort of it's it keeps reminding me of how 
lucky and how privileged I am to do what I do and, and, and travel to where I travel. Um, yeah. You know, and, and it's, it is, it's, it's, I'm, I'm fully aware of it. Let's um just just before we uh, before we finish off, when we're talking about the safari experiences in South Africa, um you know we we are I mean I, am I right in saying we are mainly talking about Kruger, and um I suppose then my next point on that would be, you know how how far is Kruger from Cape Town? You know I think a lot of times we we talk about you know people obviously they want to experience Cape Town and the Cape. Um, and the Western Cape in particular, but then they also want to experience, um, you know, the, the wildlife side of things. What are the distances that we're talking about? And, you know, really how easy or not is it to to combine both of those? Yeah, okay, so when we're talking about wildlife in South Africa, I think the majority of people focus in on Kruger National Park um, being so well-renowned, um, but there are a lot of other safari areas around um you know you've got the northern kalahari just sort of a two-hour flight um in a small aircraft from cape town um you have the kruger is probably about a two and a half hour flight on a on a commercial uh, jet which gets you into the, the kruger region um and then there's other areas down on the kwazulu natal coast so that, that um if i can say the the northeastern coastline of of south africa um, where you've got some stunning national parks, um, private reserves as well. And um, so it all depends. I mean, from Cape Town, I would say on average, it's probably about a two and a half hour flight around, sort of from Cape Town, anywhere you okay. want to go. Um, yeah. If you want to drive, it's a lot longer. <laughs> um, yeah. You're looking at possibly a, a day and a half to a two day drive um, to get from Cape Town to the Kruger region. Okay, yeah, Pro probably easier easier to fly. Although, you know, it, is it a, is it a bad drive? I mean, could, I reckon it could be quite an interesting drive, actually. It's a stunning drive. You know, the the the, 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 the country is is so varied and it's it's so diverse in in its, its landscapes. Um, you know, you you can cut straight through the center of the country and go through the the central Karoo, um, which is is a spectacular. It's, it's barren. It's not almost nothing out there. There's a lot that lives out there from a smaller perspective, but it's yeah. just scenically stunning. Um, you could drive up the garden route of of South Africa very well known drive up the yeah. garden route. Um, Fair enough. I've just come back from from that region yesterday. It is so green at the moment. Um, the yellow canola fields are out. It's a spectacular drive to do, but I wouldn't do it straight. I would stop at certain areas and, and actually take it all in. Um, yep. You know, so driving, absolutely, you know, and if you're driving up that route and you wanted to get to the safari side of things, you'd go through the Drakensberg mountain range, um, which is another spectacular part of the country, which I don't feel enough people get to. Yep. Um, you know, you can go and visit the battlefields, the KwaZulu-Natal, the Anglo-Boer War, the Zulu-Boer War, uh, battlefields around um, that area as well, which is, is another complete sort of side to the whole part of traveling to Africa. Um, so either way, I mean, sometimes I think flying, yes, it's easy and it's quick, but you do miss a lot yeah. of the country that you're driving or you, you're traveling through. So if you have the time, yeah, I would definitely drive. Yeah, fair play. It was interesting, actually, we, we've been doing a mini podcast series um, with a guy called Andy Brabin, who has traveled all over the world by rail. And as he's been doing it, and I haven't done a huge amount of rail travel, but as he's been talking about it and talking about you know the advantages of seeing seeing the world and the land you know at ground level, um, and I'm I've you know at heart I've always been you know a bit more on the aviation side of things, um, but it's really opened my eyes actually to 
you know, to to all that you miss out at when you do fly. Actually, he, he, actually, his his number one. This guy's travel. This guy's travelled on the train everywhere in the world, Warren. And yeah. you know, his number one. His number one train is the Rovos Rovos Rail. Rovos Rail. <laughs> I, was, I, was, right? I was just I was just going to mention that. Yeah, I was just going to mention you? that because. Tell we, tell we, our. We haven't released the podcast yet. <laughs> we we've got we've got a we've got actually two phenomenal trains that will that people can travel on, and it's called the Rovos Rail is one, and, and the Blue Train is another. And and you know I've been on the Rovos a few times. I've been on the Blue Train. Um, it does you, you, it slows you down to seeing the countryside, and you know it's. Yeah. If I had to have a favorite, and I must be careful maybe saying this, but you know, for me, the Rovos, it's, it's more of an authentic, beautiful, old school, 19, sort of 30s, 40s kind of feel that you get to it. Um, and it doesn't only go through Southern Africa, it goes all the way around Africa. It goes up to East Africa if you want to do yeah. a journey. Um, you know, so you, you can literally go from Cape Town all the way to Mombasa in Kenya on the Robos Rail. Um, and I think they've actually opened up a route now that goes from east to west. So you can go from Mombasa all the way to the coast on the west coast of Africa. Um, you know, and I I love trains. I love I love that train, to be honest. Um, it's spectacular. You know, you sit back, they've got a beautiful uh, lounge cart at the back there. And you I could sit there all day just watching the world go past because that's that's what it is. You know, driving it takes it takes the stress out of driving away because when you're driving obviously if you're driving you're not really looking too much at the scenery um unless you yep. stop and you look around but being in a train i couldn't agree with you more it's it's something that i think is is phenomenal and and to be able to do the rovos or the blue train in in south africa is is something that i would i would recommend to most people to try and do yeah, it's it's firmly on my bucket list. I can assure you of that. One one day, Warren, I'll I'll be there. And I believe there's um, <laughs> Andy. Andy was telling me there's uh, there's there's like um uh, like a terrace on the on the train as well, which is like an open terrace where you can have a few sundowners in the open air, uh, surrounded by nature. I mean, yeah. I was just thinking, God, this this is rail travel. This is the way it should be. Hey. They, they, they have they've revolutionized it i think because yeah they have their last the very last carriage is 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 half enclosed and half outside and yeah. literally you open the sliding doors you walk outside and you you're at the back of the train and, and people just sit there for hours and hours and hours they've got gin and tonic in hand or a glass of wine in hand and they're just watching the world go past um it's no it is something that is really really special to do play. yep another one on the list well listen i think that's God's all we've got time for um, for this particular episode, Warren, um, thank you so much for um, for giving us your insights, um, which has been wonderful. We've learned uh, we've learned an awful lot today, um, and of course, we've got more to come uh, next week. Um, we're going to be talking next week about Botswana. Give us a taste. What does Botswana have to offer in the low season? And is it it looks it looks very very different to um, to what we've been talking about in South Africa, right? It is very, very, very different. Um, there's so many parts to Botswana, and that's the other side of it, which is great. You know, a lot of people focus strictly on the Okavango Delta, um, and it's definitely a place that I would recommend everyone go and see. Um, and it's, it's, but there's a lot more. You know, you got the the Mahari Hari salt pans, which is the remnants of an ancient super lake um, that's mm -hmm. during the low season gets a phenomenal zebra migration that goes through it. Um, you know, to the central Kalahari game reserve. And when you talk about small things, um, you know, small animals, it's, it's a fantastic place to go. I mean, you've got meerkats, 
um, brown hyena, um, artvark or pangolin, you know, these small animals that you you don't typically see when you get to the larger reserves because most people are focused on, as you, as you call it, the big animals and the big five. And um, it's, it's something that yeah, it, there's a lot to offer. It really is. It's got some wild areas up in the northern part. Um, wetlands, there's it's, it's, it's such it's there's a smorgasbord of stuff to do really yet. Well, we're looking forward to that. So, um, so that's next Monday at the same time. Um, but until then, huge thanks to, to you, Warren. Um, and of course, thanks again to Africa Rome uh, for their sponsorship of, the, of this show. And we'll look forward to catching up with you next week for Botswana. Really looking forward to finding out more, Warren. Uh, but until then, have a great week. And thanks, thanks again. Thanks a million, man. Thank you. It's been fantastic. Thank you so much. So there you have it. Huge thanks again to Warren for sharing his insights with us this week, as well as our friends, of course, at Africa Rome, without whose support this mini-series would not be possible. Please do visit our lowseasontraveler.com website to learn all about the Low Season Africa series, as well as seeing our latest content and some amazing competition prizes which we'll be giving away this summer. Also, please do visit the africarome.com website to learn more about the incredible experiences which those guys offer for their guests. You'll be in safe hands. In the next episode, we stay in Africa as we head slightly north to Botswana as we learn more about the incredible diversity of this destination. If you haven't already done so, please do like and follow the Low Season Traveller pages on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter to see all of our new latest content and be in with a chance to win stays in some top five-star luxury properties as well as being the first to know about our latest Low Season Traveller live updates. And that's our podcast done for this week. Thanks as always for your company. Have a great week. Stay healthy. Stay safe. Keep your travel dreams alive and don't forget to share this podcast with your friends, family and social networks. And finally, remember that now more than ever, travel is better without the crowds.